Welcome to the Real Estate Investing Club. This is the place everyday real estate investors gather to share their best stories, biggest insights, and favorite tactics to grow a portfolio of cash-flowing properties in today's market. Here's your host, Gabe Peterson. All right, we are back with another episode of the Real Estate Investing Club. Today we have Brennan Degner with us from DB Capital. Brennan is here from the multifamily side. We love our multifamily peeps. He's going to be, he's got a lot of experience, um, and we're going to talk about multifamily, about the market today. So, super excited. Brennan, thank you very much for hopping on the show. Thanks for having me, Gabe. Good to see you. Absolutely. Uh, I told you before we got on here, we'd like to start with stories. We like to hear how people got into real estate. So why don't you take us to the beginning? How'd you get started in real estate? Yeah, it's actually an interesting uh, interesting story. I was in college and uh, somehow I was reading, trying to read a lot of books at the time. I stumbled on Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Uh, and uh, at the time, I knew virtually nothing about finance, nothing about real estate investing or anything like that. But it was just like a, a, such a dumbed down way to look at the world, uh, kind of looking back on it now today, um, that it, it like completely changed my life, uh, funny enough. So I was trying to uh, uh, kind of follow the path to law school at the time. So this would have been like my junior year of college. And I read this book and it absolutely shifted what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a real estate investor. And so uh, my first like stint or experience in real estate was I called up the guy who was my landlord at the time and just asked him, like, can I shadow you? He was a small investor. I think he owned like five or six duplexes and triplexes uh, in the Tucson area. I went to University of Arizona. And uh, for no money or anything like that, I just kind of followed him around. So I went to some like uh, city planning meetings. He was working on some new developments that he was doing. So I got involved in that. You know, I had lunch with him one time. I, I specifically remember him teaching me what a cap rate was, like as, as like <laughs> fundamental, like bare bones as you could think of. And I really got a taste for it and, and loved it. And so I moved out to Los Angeles uh, once I had graduated. Um, and started looking for uh, a job. Um, I didn't really have, other than that, like short stint, any real estate experience. My degree wasn't in real estate, uh, so I I kind of stumbled into a unpaid internship uh, with a pretty prolific developer named Bob Champion um, when I first moved out to Los Angeles and and got kind of lucky. And at the same time, I was kind of because I couldn't survive very long in an unpaid internship. I was looking for different avenues and I got another internship that was paid $10 an hour with a group called MJW investments that did uh, $10 an hour in LA. I feel like that is it was not tough. Cut it. it was tough. I, <laughs> I, I remember, you know, discretionary income was non-existent at the time, but, uh, but I think it was a good, you know, good learning experience and, uh, you know, taught, taught me a lot about living on a budget, but, um, you know, I, I had built up a little bit of savings from working in college, so I had a little bit of runway, but it was, you know, it was quickly deteriorating at $10 an hour. So uh, so I was working at both for, for a while, and then I got this big promotion at MJW from $10 an hour to a salaried position at $30,000 a year. Um, and so I, I stopped at the unpaid internship and focused on 
on my my career at MJW, and I, I really was just kind of in the right place at the right time. Um, basically, the principal's entire team left like in the night to go start their own shop. And so at this point, I'd been working there for probably 60 to 90 days. So like I had good rapport with the uh, the main principal. He was a very prolific developer in Los Angeles and also had built up a uh, a sizable about a just under a billion dollar portfolio of, of retail, uh, mostly multifamily, some student housing at the time. And so he had a good diverse uh, um, uh, portfolio to start with. And at the time we were doing receivership and REO management for bank. This was kind of like at the tail end of the great financial crisis. And so I got my first work for him in managing highly distressed deals for either the bank or kind of pre foreclosure with uh, as as an appointed receiver. And so um, these guys, everyone left kind of overnight and he had a decision like, do I go out and, you know, hire a whole new high salaried team uh, or in his eyes, do I take kind of the guy who's left and see if I can kind of build him in as my right hand man and, and kind of start a growth pattern back then uh, from there. And luckily for me, he chose the latter and uh, pulled me into his office one day. And he's like, do you, are you ready to, you know, really put your, put your time in and increase your learning curve? Yeah. And and he just threw me into stuff. Like I had uh, the funniest story. He always tells it when I see him is we had a, we had a takeover of a, uh, of like a 200 key hotel in Southern California I knew nothing about hotels. Like I didn't know what the average daily rate meant, like any of like the vernacular. And I still probably don't today. Um, and I was in charge of leading a takeover uh, strategy meeting with every one of the employees of the hotel. So oh, like your head of staff from every different department from like food and beverage maintenance, all that kind of stuff. And we sit and we sit in and I'd like, and he wasn't there. So it truly was sink or swim. And I had to kind of figure out how to lead this meeting. He put a um, lot of trust in you there. Yeah. So a lot of tra- kind of blind trust in me at that point. Um, but I think that really kind of, you know, put me in a position where uh, I had to kind of build a lot of confidence in myself and figure things out on the go. And then um, around 2012, uh, late 2012, 13, uh, we hired in another partner to lead acquisitions, and then we kind of turned down the receivership and REO business and, and got back to what he had really gotten or been successful in, which was uh, acquiring um, assets and, and raising capital. And so we built, by the time I left, which was 2017, we were one of the top 25 owners of student, private owners of student housing in the country. Oh, wow. uh, so a lot of my first, uh, first, career was in student housing um, with a focus on kind of student housing and value-add multifamily. Um, around 2015, a, uh, a, a friend of mine from college approached me, um, who's now my my business partner, Devin, and he said, I've got a little bit of family money. Um, I would love to invest in real estate, but I don't really have much of a, a background in it. He'd kind of seen what I've been doing at MJW. And that led to us doing our first deal together, which was that uh, we paid $860,000 for it. It was a nine unit property in Pico Union. It was built in 1912, I think. Wow. Um, and uh, I mean, it was like the traditional Los Angeles multifamily value add story. Like the tenants were all paying, you know, 50% below market. It was a rent control deal. 
Uh, and we kind of built a business off of doing a few of those while I was working at MJW. And I've also gotten into the USC MRED uh, Masters in Real Estate Development Program. So I was kind of doing all three of those at one time. I finished the MRED. And then by that point in time, Devin and I had built a portfolio of, I think, six deals. Um, and my my kind of side gig had started to outweigh from an allocation of time perspective my my day gig. Um, and at that point in time, we uh, I, I made the the election to leave and focus on um, raising additional outside money, uh, in, in, you know, outside of just his families. And that was kind of the point of inflection. And since then, that was 2018. Since then, we've built about 3,000 unit portfolio. Um, which is about 600 million of assets under management. We've we've exited, um, so gone full circle on uh, uh, I think 17 or 18 projects now. Uh, built a good track record. Started to raise money from you know institutional investors, uh, large private equity groups, and stuff like that. So so that's that's the story of uh, how I went from uh, reading Rich Dad Poor Dad to the portfolio that we have today. That's awesome, man. That is, uh, it sounds like, you know, lots of ups and downs. I love that you kind of were thrown into the deep end with that, um, that yeah, original mentor. <laughs> yeah, that was fun. I feel like it's, it's during those times that you really, um, you know, you build your confidence because you, you're going in there and you're like, fuck, I don't know what I'm doing, but you come out yeah. the other side and you're like, if I make it through that, I can make it through anything. So yeah, you got to develop some thick skin in this business. And I think that that helped me do that. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, I actually kind of started the same way. I was, uh, well, I was also going to law, well, planning on going to law school, but I read Rich Dad Poor Dad, okay. and I, I think they need. I just feel like the university curriculum or even high school cur- curriculum needs to add in an investing course. There needs to be some step, or even just reading, reading that book. Like it doesn't get any simpler than uh than that like the way that that book like outlines how to invest and even if it's not in real estate just like the ideology of it i think uh more i think society as a whole would benefit from from having that as as a uh um mandated curriculum yeah absolutely um but man you guys have had great success since 2018 you got up to 3000 units that is a huge that's a hockey stick right there mm-hmm. Um, you had experience in student housing. I'd love to dive into both of them. Student housing is something I actually don't know a lot about. Um, it sounds, yeah. you know, it sounds like a great asset to be in. When you're talking about student housing, is it uh, does that include single families that you run out uh, room by room, or is it just no? Room so room? what what at least what we looked at was primarily what what our business model was trying to buy a little bit older. Um, conventional product. So not the like purpose-built stuff you see today where it's like four bedrooms, four bathrooms, uh, equal parity and uh, new highly amenitized product. What we would try and find were a little bit older product. And historically things weren't, you know, built that way. Think student deals were built as conventional style deals up until, um, you know, a little bit more recently. So what we would try and find is those type of deals but that were like main and main on campus. So like we bought a deal at University of Michigan that was literally like off the steps of uh, the entrance. It's, I think it's called the diagonal or the zag or something like that on campus. And, and it was like a 1970s project, project single owner for, for the last 30 years. 
Um, and we bought it and did uh, a pretty large scale renovation, added like a, it was a tower, added like a rooftop deck, uh, renovated all the units, uh, tried to add some amenities with like the addition of a gym and a cooler leasing office and stuff like that. So what we would try and do is buy a little bit older product that we could draft off of all the super high end, highly amenitized stuff. And then add a little bit of amenities and so add a little bit of coolness factor to the uh, older product and really cater to what we saw was, you know, the the average person at the university. So not like the high end students, you know, with the very wealthy parents. It was like, who's your average person going to school here? Let's get them close to campus so they can roll out of bed and be in in, in their classroom in 10 minutes. Um, but like put them in a, a nice unit that's not really run down and stuff like that. So, so that was more of our business model. But um, the reason we don't invest in student housing anymore or that I elected not to in starting DB was A, it's really, really hard to manage. And like the, mm-hmm. the, the dips and dives and like the highs and low and from an property perspective yeah. are just a grind. And it's every year. So you start really in like October. And you do this whole marketing and pre-leasing strategy and this ramp up in your rates and this like heavy amount of strategy and where do you start and where do you want to stop and all this stuff. And like you get through that and it feels like you've just been in battle for the last, (laughs) you know, 11 months. And then the dust settles, you get all your move-ins and then the summertime is inevitably crazy with, uh, if you're especially trying to renovate, then like everyone moves in, dust settles and it's like two weeks later, you start it all over again. Um, so it's it's just a lot of work. And what we saw was that the you just didn't get paid for that amount of risk and work as yeah. it matured. So when we first really started to go heavy into student housing, it was really like 2012, 2013. Um, and I, I specifically remember a pretty significant yield premium. So if we're talking just cap rates, probably 100 plus basis points between you know, a conventional deal and a student housing deal is, is, is where you would see things trading. Um, and so you got paid, uh, from a yield perspective for taking on more risk and taking on those operational challenges. And we really saw those kind of the, the gap shrink significantly. And as, at points in time, because it was such a like sexy asset class to be in, it even inverted depending on which markets you're in. So it just didn't feel like you were getting paid for that, that risk anymore. So I elected, I think more of it was I didn't want to have. I don't want to be starting a company that had those kind of operational challenges. It just takes a lot of a lot of resources, a lot of bandwidth. It's tough to scale because you really can only for concentration reasons, you don't want to buy more than a handful of deals in any one market. But generally, student housing markets are pretty small. And so supply demand can shift overnight on you or in one leasing season. And uh, and you find yourself having to you know, take multiple flights to get into a market. Like we had deals in Pullman and I have to fly oh, through yeah. Seattle well, and then yeah, get on one of those little prop planes and fly <laughs> into Pullman. And nine times out of 10, like the flight back home got canceled. The times I I, I had to drive from like Pullman back to Seattle, catch a flight. From Five Seattle hours back right to LA. there. Yeah. Um, I just wasn't and, interested in that. So it's, it's a great asset class. I actually think it's probably a I haven't really looked at it a ton or spent a lot of time on it uh, in the last few years, but it's probably a good time. It's kind of a counter cyclical business. Uh, usually in recessionary times, student housing holds up pretty well. Um, but I do think that the, uh, the, uh, the way it matured and how much more institutional capital kind of came into the market kind of 
took away a lot of the benefit that we were finding early on when we first started uh, going after it. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And I've actually seen a lot of uh, articles on my like Google feed with different universities closing because, you know, uh, uh, admission rates are going down and cities like Pullman, that is, they are Washington State University. Like Pullman doesn't exist. Exactly. (laughs) And so if you're, I mean, if you're a hundred percent dependent on one you know, one employer, that's, uh, that's, that's a risk. Yeah. We tried to hedge that by always looking at universities that had very strong sports programs. That was kind of like one of our, um, you know, secret sauce outlines was that we, we knew that that would always generate a captive audience for enrollment Mm -hmm. there. Like, so like a university of Texas or university of Michigan or something like that, regardless of what happens on a macro level with the the student environment, you're always going to have demand for people who, you know, grow up, grew up and they were a fan of that school. And especially at schools like Texas and Michigan that also have a very prestigious uh, um, reputation uh, education wise. Like those were the type of schools that we would really target because we didn't see those, you know, losing admissions to online enrollment and stuff like yeah. that over time. Yeah, that makes sense. So you're not going after the small private universities yeah. that nobody's heard yeah. about. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't want to spend too much time on student housing, but I, I, one last question that I am kind of interested in when you're when you're looking at investing in student housing for anybody out there who is interested, generally, how many blocks away from campus do you would you consider to be student housing? And at what point yeah. do you do you think it's just regular residential? Um, so it's it's a complicated answer depending on which market you're in because there are markets like Lubbock, Texas is one that we were in, Texas Tech, where uh, you had your student like your your student housing that was all within a you know a couple blocks radius, but you also had because of just where you were able to build like your quote unquote bus route uh, student housing, so that oh, yeah. that they were they had a shuttle that serviced it, and that was still purpose built. I would say that that is where we saw a ton of risk and we didn't want to like we we tried that deal. We got it on a good basis, uh, you know, ultimately did did well on it. But it was uh, for the supply demand uh, reasons. Um, there's it, it, that becomes very difficult. So I would say we I think that our general um, barometer was we wanted to be we would we would pick the like the main and main location of uh, of campus. So like at University of Arizona, it would have been the mall. Um, at University of Michigan, it was the the Zag or whatever uh, I was talking about. And, and we would say, we need to be within a 10 minute walk mm. to that. And yep. so uh, a lot of universities that just ruled out in general because the product just, just didn't exist. So we had to spend a lot of time trying to dissect which which markets had that type of product that fit our thesis that, um, you know, we didn't want, we wouldn't be getting into and being exposed from a location perspective. Cause that's, that's really where you live and die is if, um, in the student market, like you deliver, you deliver beds at, at generally the same scale as you would conventional housing in like Seattle or something like that. So typically a developer is going to be building economies of scale around 200 to 300 units, in a student market, that could be five percent of your supply oh, that yeah. one project. Whereas in you know Seattle, that's you know a, a rounding error. And so what we saw is using Lubbock as an example is that like overnight in eighteen months, you know they put up I think it was two thousand beds delivered, and it was all because 
uh, the universities publish these reports that say we're going to try and, you know, tear up in university and we're going to try and get from, you know, X amount of students to Y over, you know, a 10 year basis. And that's a lot of what developers follow. Um, but what happened in Lubbock, and I think this would have been like 16 to 17 or 17 to 18 or around that time period, is they had very ambitious growth expectations uh, published. So you had this flood of developers come in, and I think it was about 2,000 beds that, that occurred in one leasing cycle, deliveries occurred in one leasing cycle, and then the university didn't hit their target. Mm. So you had this huge, steep increase in supply, and you or demand, uh, sorry, supply, and then you had flat demand, and then it was just a bloodbath, like it was a concession yeah. war the next year. And so, um, so going back to your main question, that's why it was so important is because that's how you really insulate yourself from those future uh, supply influxes if, is if you're close to campus and, you know, there's barriers to entry to building more product uh, near you, you're always going to be someone's first first choice, regardless of like how well amenitized and stuff like that some of these deals are. If you're an affordable deal that's, you know, within 10 minutes of being at their classrooms, like that building's always going to be full. Yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's it's funny you mentioned Lubbock. I actually uh, I bought a self storage facility down in Lubbock. It was literally three be- three blocks from uh, Texas um, Texas Tech, mm-hmm. and we. It's I feel like those areas are interesting because the the uh, um, net rentable square feet for the market in Lubbock is overbuilt, but that specific area wasn't. And yep. you know we were talking before the show. Crime is a big thing that I look at to make sure that we don't get a lot of vandalism. Um, and, but it, you know, we bought it and it turned out that this was actually kind of a bad area. Yeah. Um, and we didn't get the leasing that we expected. We thought, you know, with student housing, there'd be pretty easy to lease up and it didn't turn out to yeah. be that. But students are cheap. So they'll yeah. find they'll they'll find any means necessary to store their stuff before they pay you a hundred bucks or a month or whatever it is. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, all right, let's uh, let's shift gears a little bit here. We are running down the clock, and I want to get into multifamily before we uh, we switch over. Um, sure. You guys are at three thousand units now. That is awesome. You went from I think in the beginning you said like nine was your nine units was your first deal. Yeah, n- nine unit deal was our first deal. Okay, um, so let's talk about scale. So what was the? I guess what was the point at which? allowed you guys to scale to the 3000 units um what was i mean was it capital raising was it yeah so it was it was kind of an iteration of multiple inflection points so like the first one was uh like if i just look at kind of the milestones it was doing well on our first uh off balance sheet deal so the first time we raised money outside of doing it ourselves because that's that was the first iteration as we bought six deals they were all with our own capital or primarily uh, Devin's family's capital. Um, and we did really well on those. So we built a track record. So we, we kind of established a small track record. And then it was that is what helped propel us into that first deal with a new, uh, more traditional joint venture partner. Uh, I think it was like two or $3 million of equity. Um, and then we did really well on that. And that led to kind of scaling. And I think we did five deals with that same joint venture partner, all within like a closing within like a one year time frame and then kind of got through those and then built a track record off of uh, or outside of just our own capital and that's really when the wheels started turning is cuz cuz a lot of people don't want to be like your or a lot of groups don't want to be your first first investment rightfully so 
Um, and so it was kind of that iteration, getting outside of doing stuff just on our own balance sheet, getting that first investor to, to believe in us, uh, and then doing well for them is really what catapulted the next. And, and if you look at it, it almost just reinvents itself every time. Cause like the next stage is how do we do well for an investor that can write us a $10 million check? We've done really well for all these investors that can write two to $5 million checks. And now like the next stepping stone is doing well for an investor that can write big checks. And we did that. And then that creates all this, you know, extra momentum and stuff around, uh, around your, your platform. So, um, so I'd look at it and, and say like each, each time it was a stepping stone that, that resulted in, in the continuation of that growth trajectory. Yeah, that makes sense. You guys started, you did well on, on deals you bought with your own money. And then yep. you went to a one-on-one kind of JV. You found an individual capital partner. He put his money in, you did well there. And then you scaled up. Are you guys are you guys kind of doing the fund model now? Or are you, or are you talking? So we're to in the process of raising our first fund. So okay. that's, again, the, the iteration continues. And so everything we've done to date has been on a direct basis. Um, so, you know, we'll, we'll find a deal, we'll put it under contract, we underwrite it, we put a package together, and then we go make the market on the equity side, try and get a couple term sheets, use that to negotiate economics, and then we've got a joint venture partner. Um, so that's been how we've raised, uh, how, uh, 250 to 300 million that we've raised today. Our next iteration is we have a, uh, um, we're in initial conversations on an anchor to anchor a $150 million fund um, that will start kind of that progression as a discretionary fund manager um, for our own deal. So we don't have any intention of trying to become like a private equity group that invests in other people's deals, but uh, that'll kind of have our in-house capital source. And so what we're trying to do over time is continue our path of uh, being fully vertically integrated. So we have a construction company that's based in Dallas. We just did a joint venture with a property management firm. So we kind of tried to combine uh, combine forces and use the size of an existing partner and introduce a joint venture to uh, allow us to have a little bit more control and dedicated resources into in our own assets. So kind of a hybrid uh, third-party in-house uh, property management arm. Um, and so I think that the next progression for that vertical integration is to have funds in-house that we manage. And we'll still, you know, we'll still do deals direct with some of our uh, preferred capital partners, but I think that we'll start to um, hedge the need to like tie up a deal and then go scramble around for weeks trying to get equity lined up it'll kind of be um more of a uh you know we need to get some fun money into it alongside our joint venture partner on bigger deals maybe the fund is 100 percent of the capital and smaller stuff and so it'll just allow us to be a little bit faster to execute and more nimble yeah yeah the fund model to me is definitely appealing i'm, I'm in you know I, I go to individual investors and you know a syndication model but the fund model when you just have the money ready to execute yeah. that sounds um especially for times like i think we're going to see over the next 12 to 24 months where you know there's i think there's going to be a tremendous amount of opportunity i think our our industry uh, experienced a significant amount of over leverage uh, and mm-hmm. you know creative financing over the last few years as things were very frothy. 
And so I think being able to have, you know, a captive base of capital to deploy uh, at a better basis is really going to be um, be what kind of separates, you know, a group for, like us from from having to uh, to pool together retail money once we find a deal. And you guys only invest in LA, correct? Or are you guys nationwide? No, actually, we don't invest at all in LA anymore. Okay. <laughs> uh, so we started in LA and we saw the political landscape uh, continue to make it more and more challenging for us to kind of control our own destiny. Uh, you know, rent control. You see, if you know the, about the mansion tax that just passed, like all, all these different hammers um, that have come down over the last few years make it really like it's stuff that you can't underwrite to. Like there's no like line item in your Excel model that's like political risk. Um, and so, uh, so that was one of the reasons that we kind of shifted out. Um, and so we invest in Texas, Colorado, Utah, um, Arizona, and Nevada right now. So kind of Texas West, but um, try and stick to more landlord friendly states. Although Colorado's pendulum is kind of swinging. Uh, but we've owned in Portland, as we were discussing prior to this, and we've owned in L.A., um, but kind of made a thematic exit out of those coastal markets over the last few years. Yeah, I'm I'm looking a lot in Texas myself. I love uh, love Texas. All the major yeah. metros out there are just growing like yeah. gangbusters. I love it. Yeah, we're big in Austin and San Antonio. We don't we we are looking in Dallas. We don't own anything currently in Dallas, but it's it's on our uh kind of to-do list um but we we have a, a decent amount in san antonio and austin already nice all right before we switch over to the quick question round you mentioned earlier you said you kind of have a, a hybrid management model um property yeah. management model so do you give equity to your third-party property managers on the deals or how does i didn't quite know so it's so the joint venture is actually a an entity between db and the property management firm that uh our management flows through essentially so it's kind of a drop down for each um and uh what what we're able to do is from the fees generated from our portfolio we have a dedicated staff on the operations side. So people in the uh, people on the operations team that only oversee our our assets. And that was one of the main that was one of the main things I was focused on when um, trying to decipher between third party and in-house is like I'm I'm by no means is my experience in the property management industry, but I've I've witnessed the um, the importance of having, you know, those dedicated, you know, your regional supervisors and stuff like that be focused just on your assets. Cause otherwise what ends up happening inevitably is like, you know, everyone has like probably weekly calls and stuff like that with their operations team. And what I, what I hated was the feeling of like, you know, I just gave, you know, uh, regional manager of Texas 70 different action items for the next week. You know, what happens when that person hangs up the phone and they have three more of those calls that day from other investors? And so what we tried to solve for was to have dedicated resources for the like day to day operations side and then leverage the large back office that the management company already had for things like accounting and marketing and all like kind of the the behind the scenes stuff. Um, And so we did a joint venture agreement with them to basically house our dedicated uh, resources for our portfolio. And so that's why I say it's a little bit of a hybrid. At the end of the day, it's really that we have 
uh, you know, strategic alliance with this uh, property management group with dedicated resources for our day-to-day management. Whereas on the general contractor side, it's, you know, we, we own half of them and they really only do work on our portfolio. They do a little bit of third-party stuff, but we've been busy enough over the last 12 months that we've really been focused uh, on just being the GC on our own value-add projects. Nice, man. I love it. All right. We have run down the clock, so it is time to jump into the quick question round. Are you ready? I am. Let's do it. Starts. uh, Well, you've kind of already answered this one, but I'm going to ask it anyways. It starts with books or any form of education. Give me one or two recommendations, actually. One for general life wisdom and then one real estate specific. Uh, Got it. Yeah. So one of my favorite books for general life wisdom um, was Outliers, Malcolm Gladwell. Uh, again, kind of around the same time period, I read that and, uh, you know, it dovetailed into my, you know, having a focus uh, on, on, you know, building my 10,000 hours. Uh, so, um, so outliers for general life stuff. I mean, I think the easy answer for the real estate side would have been uh, uh, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I'm trying to think of a real estate specific book um, that I've read. Uh, I mean, some of the, some of the content, um, uh, from my master's in real estate time at USC, um, is, is, uh, a lot more boring, like textbook type stuff to read, yeah. but, uh, is, is, you know, helps build a good foundation. So I would say, you know, for, for ease of, uh, conversation, the rich dad, poor dad, I mean, that, that definitely yeah. was life-changing as, as far as real estate. That's what got me into real estate. So I think I have to go that direction. Yeah, that is a solid recommendation. Um, it's been echoed many times on this podcast. For sure. Yeah. Reason. Yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, it's a good and You can song. read it in like an afternoon and, yeah. uh, and it's pretty easy. Exactly. All right, moving on. This is for your younger self. So let's go back to the Brennan, um, the one who was getting $10 an hour at that internship. Yep. Go back to him, look him in the eye, give him one piece of advice moving forward. Um. The one piece of advice, I mean, the, the one big mistake that I, we make mistakes every day. So this is hard, but the, the, I think the biggest mistake as far as like the, the, how it impacted the trajectory and my, the trajectory of our business and my stress levels was when you get ready to start different partnerships. Uh, how important it is to clearly identify the roles and responsibilities of the different people who are involved. And, and uh, the reason I say that is we had a very um, time intensive expense. Devin and I had a very time intensive and expensive learning relationship when we tried to go into a co-GP platform with another. They called themselves a family office and it really didn't end up turning out that way. And, and what we failed to do on the front end was fully do our DD and understand who it was we were partnering with and then outline what are you, what are each side responsible for? Cause when you're starting these partnerships, especially between friends, it seems so friendly and it's, it's almost like morbid to discuss some of the stuff you need to. Um, in your partnership agreements. And so that would be the one thing I would tell my naive self is like, you got to put the friendships aside and uh, and really focus on for this partnership to work. What do sides, you know, X, Y, and Z need to bring to the table? Yep. Now that is uh, timeless advice. And it's very important, especially with partnerships to 
just for the 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 ease of execution to really know which lanes everybody's in. So great advice yeah. for your younger self. Um, I'm going to move us on to the next one. This is about positions in your company. So your company lives and dies by the people in it. Um, yeah. and we're not talking about individuals here, but what are the, fir- the first three positions you hired for and would you do it differently if you started today? Yeah, so the first positions I hired for were uh, for deal flow. So they were really acquisitions positions. And what the way we structured it was that um, each position only covered uh, up to one to two markets. And in Texas, it's now three. So it's DFW, Austin, and San Antonio. And I would not change that uh, had I needed to do it over again, because what we've been able to do, and I, going back to our student conversation, is I learned it is so important to know your market inside and out and be a local and, and you know, know where the next coffee shop's coming up or bar or restaurant. You got what, what zoning overlays are in the pipeline, all that kind of stuff. And to do that across a bunch of markets for myself is virtually impossible. And, and what, when I say student housing was tough is because you got to parachute into a market. You know, you see a deal, you might not own anything else in that market. And you got to figure out not only do you like the deal, but do you like that market all within the same kind of general like 60 to 90 day closing time frame you would uh, conventional deal. So that is the way we structured it. We have a a regional vice president that oversees acquisitions and asset management in Texas, Colorado, and uh, Arizona. And those each cover up to two markets. And that's really allowed us to be a local uh, in a much more large uh, or larger geographical setting. Um, and, and so th- I wouldn't do that over again. I would hire a CFO earlier um, if I were to, to to go through this again, my background was not accounting. I know enough in accounting to be dangerous, but it's definitely not my my specialty. Um, and I, basically, I was the one uh, accounting and finance. Uh, I was the one doing all of that stuff up until more recently when we hired a really good, experienced CFO uh, who's taken uh, mounds and mounds and mounds of work off of my plate and increased the level of sophistication in our financial reporting and just, you know, the way we uh, move around money and stuff like that. So I would, I would hire that earlier if I would to do it again. Yeah, that is, that is really good advice. I am tax time is my least favorite time of the year, just because I have to, you know, hit your head on the wall for all the, uh, yeah, all the, <laughs> just the mess that is. That it's is kind of like student tax. housing. It feels like you're in this battle for months and then the dust settles and you wake up and you have to do it all over again. <laughs> I, I don't know about you, but our tax season, you know, doesn't really officially end until like October. Mm. Uh, most of it's you guys do extensions, like yeah. it keeps going for my, mine and my partner's personal tax returns up until like October. So it feels like by the time you're done with it, like you're already starting over again for that year. Yeah, it's the worst. All right, moving us on. This is about deal flow. Um, we just you just talked about the positions you you started off with deal flow. So, what is your favorite way to find good deals? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, the the sexiest word in our industry is off market deals. Uh, and and so, like, what what does an off market deal actually mean? So, some of the best deals that we've done have been you know, broker deals, but from um, kind of semi-distressed situations, a lot of the best deals we've done have been through the need for uh, changes in estate uh, planning or like 
you know, uh, the patriarch dies, passes a, uh, an asset to, to the children, the children don't want to manage it. Like those are some of the best deals we've done. So I would say that general profile and they, they typically come a lot of times from the brokers you don't expect them to like, so not like the, you know, the CBRE office that manages, you know, yeah. does a billion a year in, in deal flow in that market. A lot of times it's like that KW broker who knew the family somehow. Um, and this might be the only multifamily deal they do that year. Um, and you have been, you know, cultivating that relationship for years to get to that point where it finally hits and you find a deal that makes sense for you. So, so I would say some of our best deals come from the, the least likely, uh, places. And so, um, if you want to be a market buyer, um, you got to stay in touch with, you know, the big shops and stuff like that, that are doing 90% of the deal flow. But I think to pick off, you know, those, those one or two unicorns every once in a while, um, you gotta, you gotta kind of cast a wider net as to who you're building relationships with. Yep, absolutely. And I've actually found the same thing. Um, it's not, you know, I, I have reached out to a few big, you know, um, big time brokers out there for self-storage, but I've often found really good deals come from just the small time brokers who, uh, you're right, just happen to have this one relationship with a guy who has a self-storage facility and he wants to sell. Um, and they, it's it's amazing how fragmented compared to other markets, the real estate industry is it's a small world. So like generally everyone kind of knows each other and stuff like that, but but the uh, the way deals are are bought and sold is is pretty fragmented when compared to uh, um, other industries. Yep, absolutely. All right, I'm gonna speed us up a bit. This is second to last question. This is about mentors. Um, none of us are gi- none of us are giants. None of us are islands. We all stand on the shoulders of giants. So, who is yep. one mentor who has contributed significantly to your career today? Can I pick two? Because go ahead. Yep. Okay. So two. So first one was my boss, Mark Weinstein at MJW, the one who kind of threw me into the fire. Still, still a close relationship of mine today. Uh, and I think without what he did, I, I I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you today potentially. Second was my partner's. He's technically my partner, but my partner's father, Bob Anton. Um, he was the one who believed in you know me and his son to get us going and. Uh, as a uh, former uh, publicly traded CEO, he uh, company CEO, he just brings a completely different set of experience and ideology to the table that really has helped me a lot as I you know manage a, a growing company. So different eras of my career, but equally important in my eyes. Nice, I love it. Well, thank you, Mark and Bob, for getting Brennan to where he is today. <laughs> That leads us to the very last question. You've given us a lot of good advice. I'm sure people want to reach out. What does your company offer? What are you guys looking for? And how can listeners get in contact with you? Yeah, the best way to get in contact with me, you can go to our website, which is dbcap.com. Um, you should be able to find my my email address and LinkedIn on there. Um, we do, even though we didn't get into it a lot, we do offer um, you know small amounts of syndicated capital in each of our deals. Um, so to the extent uh, you, your listeners want to pick up some deal flow and, and see the type of opportunities we present, we generally carve out a little bit of equity on, on every deal that we do uh, for kind of a friends and family or individual investor type round as well. 
Nice. All right. So that is dbcap.com. I will put that link in the show notes. If you want to, if you guys want to reach out to Brennan, just click a little more in the description. It'll pull down the full description and in there you can find Brennan's URL. All right. Well, hey man, that wraps it up. Thank you very much for hopping on the show. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Absolutely. For everybody who's here with us, thank you guys for showing up. You are the reason we do this. So if you guys have any questions whatsoever, reach out to me, Gabe, the real estate investing club.com. If you guys want to support the show, all we ask is you give us a like, subscribe, share all that jazz. Um, other than that, I hope you guys have an absolutely fantastic week. Keep rocking real estate. And I look forward to seeing you on the next episode. All right. Before I officially sign off, I have a quick announcement to make. If you're interested in becoming a passive investor in one of my deals, my own company, Kaizen Properties, is looking for capital partners for our upcoming projects. We invest in what are known as recession-resistant assets, mainly self-storage facilities, mobile home and RV parks, and industrial properties. If you're interested in investing and would like to learn a little bit more about my company, our investing criteria, and some of the previous projects we've done, Go to the Real Estate Investing Club podcast at therealestateinvestingclub.com and scroll all the way down to the bottom of the page. Click on the Invest With Us button. That'll pop up the investor form. Fill that out and we will reach back out to you as soon as we can. Or if you prefer a little bit more of a personal touch, you can reach out to me at gabe at therealestateinvestingclub.com. So really, that is it. Again, it was a pleasure hanging out with you guys during this episode, and I look forward to seeing you on the next episode.